Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is a special bonus episode of Intercepted. In 1958, a Virginia couple, Mildred Jeter and Richard Loving, married in the District of Columbia. About four months after their marriage, the Virginia county they lived in issued a criminal indictment charging the Lovings with violating Virginia's ban on interracial marriage. Mildred was black and Richard was white. Their case, Loving v. Virginia, eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court, but it would take nearly a decade before all state laws prohibiting interracial marriage were struck down. A new series from Topic.com tells the story of Americans born to one black parent and one white parent after the 1967 Supreme Court decision. The series is titled The Loving Generation. From Melissa Harris Perry to Matt Johnson and Panama Jackson, The Loving Generation features a diversity of voices examining the borderland between blackness and whiteness. You have who you think you are. You have the larger community, how that larger community sees you, who you are. And then you have, like, the, like, legal test case of who you are. When all three of those things are working in the same direction, everything is fine. Everything is chill. Like, if you're a mixed person who looks black and everybody thinks you're black and you think you're black, you're like, there's no conflict there. The problem is one of those things is off. That's Matt Johnson, an award-winning novelist and comic book writer. He's also one of my most favorite people on Twitter. If you haven't yet checked out his graphic novel series, Incognito, about a mixed-race detective who goes undercover as a white man to solve racially motivated crimes, do that ASAP. Matt's latest work is titled Incognito Renaissance. Matt Johnson, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's start by talking about this series that my colleague uh, Anna Holmes sort of shepherded to life that centers around the 1967 Supreme Court decision in Loving versus Virginia. For people that are not familiar with that case, can you just give a kind of basic explanation of it and and its significance in your life? Sure. Uh, Loving v. Virginia was the first case to make interracial marriage legal. Interracial marriage was legal in different states, but it was still a state's rights issue. And the Supreme Court made that a national issue and made it legal nationally for for couples of particularly black and white couples to, to be married legally. When you look back at history, they think there can be a tendency to think, well, this event happened and that kind of opened the floodgates. I honestly think not to take anything away from the importance of the of that 
individual case. But it was also um, a situation where the case was a question of reality catching up, you know, to legality, right? It, it was, there were already interracial marriages going on. There was already kind of getting to the point of a common understanding by a significant p- portion of the American population that these should be legal. Even when the actual couple was married, they had really, I think, no idea of what the legal impact of their marriage would be because there were people who were all, or already in interracial marriages in Virginia, but they went out of state to have the marriages, and oftentimes they lived in bigger places where it wasn't as much of an issue. So it basically got the American legal system caught up to the reality of this the, of the civil rights era, you know, larger change in the country. So I think like my parents were married three years later. In, in, uh, or actually, I think they were married a year later, but in Pennsylvania, where it was already legal. But I do think it affected the climate and the understanding of what that was, because you know, part of the, the fear of the civil rights movement and the fear of really of kind of white supremacy going back into slavery was, was always a sexual fear, too, you know, that our white women will end up having sex with black men. And that was this incredibly powerful fear that even affected things like architecture in during slave eras where, you know, you had the rooms of the, the white women on um, plantations being kind of protected within the within the homes. So, you know, you look at Birth of the Nation, which, you know, the most famous scenes that we still see of Birth of a Nation today are about miscegenation, about the mixture of black and white people. At the same time, Virginia in particular, because of Thomas Jefferson, the idea that there wasn't interracial actual sex is actually ridiculous. And and interracial rape, uh, primarily during the slave era, the African-American community that we have today is significantly impacted by that. So the event of the case was huge as a landmark. But the land was already there, hmm. you know. You have uh, have talked about and written about the way that you grew up in Philadelphia. Who um, who raised you? Would you would you say? I mean, I know that's yeah. a very open ended question, but but who raised you, and and right. what was it like for you growing up? Well, my parents divorced when I was about four. I lived with my mother most of the time, but my father was actively in my life. My mother is African American, comes from a Midwest, you know, small town in in Illinois. Um, my father was old school Irish Catholic Philadelphian. Most of his family came over to the States directly to Philadelphia in, in the art museum in, in like the 1830s. And they basically stayed there until the GI Bill. And so like I had long roots in there. My dad lived down the street, basically, about two miles away from where my mother did the, my entire childhood. So I had the standard like 70s divorced parent situation, you know, where you go every other weekend and Wednesdays. Like that, <laughs> that was the, the life. So my dad was actively in my life. Every mixed person has a different idea about what mixed identity means. And, and that ranges from... People who who believe like it, African ancestry doesn't really matter, and they if they look white, they can define themselves as white. To people who, and probably many more people who believe it doesn't matter about your mixed ancestry, you're black, and that's kind of the end of the story. So there's a really wide spectrum. In my case, I look at it as it's not really a like genetic thing. Like almost all African Americans are part African, part European, and and sometimes some native in there. So like the African-American community is already mixed both genetically and culturally, right? We speak English, you know, we wear European influence clothes for the most part. So that's already there. So when I think about it, what I'm thinking about it is very specifically a, a mixed ethnic experience. So for me, that meant 
my mother was working class um, and then became a social worker, which is basically working class <laughs> in, you know, financially. And I had my experience with her and I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. And then my father, who also basically lives in a predominantly black neighborhood, but like the white block in the predominantly black neighborhood, who was like, went to the co-op, Weaver's Way co-op in Mount Airy, shout out. And, you know, <laughs> so I did my hours packing peanuts. Had a very much a middle-class NPR experience. My dad was really big in camping. There was this organization, American Youth Hostels, now it's International Youth Hostels, who was active in. So I had like an experience that was more, my mother smoked menthols and drank Pepsi and had a lot of like the ill effects in her life of being a working class black person and a lot of the stresses of being a working class black person. And my dad had a lot of the sort of what you would call the stereotypical NPR tote bag existence. <laughs> like he, he still drives a Subaru Outback. And you know what I mean? Like, so I like being on fresh air, I think is probably the best thing I've ever done in his eyes, you know? All of us. I mean, it's yep. like, you know, I mean, just as a side note there, I mean, she, Terry Gross really does the work when she interviews you. She, It's clear yeah. she like reads the books and. Uh, yeah. It, like the crazy thing is like, I was a fan of Terry Gross. When I first got out of college, I worked a lot of like temp jobs and stuff for the electric company and things like that. And the only thing that would get me through was listening to Terry Gross. And this before was a national show. So I don't know if you know, it's like Philly people talk about Philly all the time because we're generally insecure, but we also I heard something the about the Super Bowl this year and yes. saw some stuff on TV about yes. Yes, something right. about Philly. Right. Yeah. So when like she went national, it was like a point of pride yeah. for me. Like I had actually done something. Same way like when the Eagles won, I really felt a level of accomplishment. But can I ask you something yeah. about that though? Um, you know, my colleague Sean King boycotted the NFL this year yeah. and, you know, was certainly not the only person, but one of the one of the big voices that was uh, really advocating for Colin Kaepernick and talking yeah. about race in the NFL and we had then we have the president calling black NFL players sons of bitches. It's what the, was that like for you, be, you know, watching all of this unfold? <laughs> We're going to get real here. Right? Well, I do want to yeah. get real. I think yeah. it's interesting. You know, it's to me, it was the classic American experience, right? Chris Rock has, to paraphrase that thing, like America is the, is the uncle who molested you but sent you to college, right? And one of my best friends who I grew up with, um, and a lot of the guys I grew up with in Philly, refused to watch the, the NFL this year. And these are like hardcore Eagles fans who like you go in their house and like half the stuff there is green. And, you know, that's really what Philly is like. And so there was a real moral quandary when the Super Bowl came because it was like, I've been waiting for this my entire life. And now it's here. And I've also made a moral position not to participate in this. And I really have immense respect because most of my I know of stuck to the guns on. I'm not a football fan. Uh, well, I like I like football. I don't like CTEs. Yeah, you know my biggest issue because it's the hardest one to challenge is is the head injuries thing. And I think if they if that doesn't change, if football's got to get canceled, just like guns have to get canceled, right? I do think the other issues, the large issues around misogyny are there too. But to me, that's something that's more possible to manage. That culture is more possible to manage than physical damage, right? So I mean, when the Eagles went, in my mind. I felt like I'm not going to let these crackers rob me of seeing a championship for my city. And then the other part of it, and I hadn't watched the whole season. I did think a lot about my uncles and like my, my you know, on the white side who they really, the Eagles are their only cultural event. They probably listen to seventies rock music and the Eagles and sometimes both. And like, that's kind of it. And I always thought they were going to die without seeing the Eagles win. 
So I did have this emotional thing with people I loved in it. But I also told myself this. When this goes down, this is my last football game. Like, this is it. I've been wanting to quit football. Like, I have a utopian dream where someday, basically, the football helmets are going to look like Juggernaut from the X-Men. And there's going to be, like, no head movement. And they're going to be fine. And there's going to be a culture in there. Because it's not just it, – there's so much going on with the football culture. I mean, the idea that politics is new here is ridiculous. Every single game I've ever been to, there has been an almost sexual – fetishization of the military like i mean it's just like it starts with bipartisan really even though it, it seems to be more right-leaning but really bipartisan a fetishizing of military life and military families to the point that's pretty dangerous and I, I come from my family my grandfather's in the 82nd airborne all american fought fought in naples and in, in world war ii and, and several of my family members have been in the 82nd airborne so you know i actually come from a military family but my family are just jerks like everybody else like it's not like they have superpowers or you know what i mean and so there's a lot that i have a problem with but i do imagine that there could be a football that is both physically and also culturally non-toxic. Until that time, I can't watch it. So to me, this game morally was sort of a release where I haven't been willing to kind of give it up because I just like, I wanted to see the city win, mm. you know? And now that the city's won, like, and I'm not saying that as like an excuse. I think it's a moral failure on my part. And I wish I was as strong as my, my friends who didn't have anything to do with it. I have a lot of friends who quit football. And I noticed a lot of them were from the Boston area. And the thing is, like, if your team's been winning a bunch, it's easier to right. quit. So I suggest everybody's teams win so they can quit. But for me, I'm going to be done. I do have a hope because I live in Texas now. And I have seen good come out of actual football. And good from perspective of somebody on the left. I have seen people from a variety of different cultures come together in this larger sense of community building out of football. Because University of Houston is the most diverse school in the country, or it, it, every other year it kind of fluctuates, but it's one of the most diverse. So I've seen football games where people are wearing, you know, traditional headdresses in the color of, of the university. They're coming up with an identity that's not just a national identity or religious identity, but an identity around community. And I think sports can do that. Obviously, that can be used to the negative, too, but sports can do that. And I think those parts are interesting. The feast that happens before it, I've seen strangers go to other people's cars and hang out and eat and talk cross party lines, which you see almost nowhere nowadays, and have something to talk about that's not Trump or not all the things that divide us. I mean, cause sports is also used to kind of divide people along city lines and tribal lines too. But I've seen people connect in ways that I don't see lately. So, you know, I do see value in it. Mm. Um, but I don't know. It's like a lot of things. Like, even the gun debate, living in a rural area, deers are ev deer are everywhere. If they're not if they're not kept in check, they get into the streets, they cause real problems. I'm okay with basically 19th century hunting rifles to deal with them. You're not afraid of grizzly bears attacking the school? That's Betsy yeah, well, DeVos are, has really raised awareness on right? that issue. <laughs> I live in Alaska. Grizzly yeah. bears are not coming anywhere yeah. near school. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm not completely opposed to that. But like the issue becomes very black and white. And I think once it becomes black and white, it also starts to become unmovable because we have we start dealing in absolutes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I actually think even people who are diehard op opponents of 
guns in general. I don't think the issue there is like we don't want people to have a hunting rifle. I mean, the point now is that you have these weapons of war where you can gun down 40, 50 people. Yeah. You can go in and take out, you know, a couple dozen six-year-olds. Yeah. And it's like we're we're insane in this country. And it's, it's but the, and the NRI would say like, oh, Matt, that's exactly what we're about too. We we think that people have the right to have these for hunting and blah, blah, blah. But the AR-15, you know, that the Second Amendment doesn't say we can't have an AR-15. I mean, it, the, the level of logic at play here is so right. insane. Well, I, I think the level of logic is to say something non-existent because what's yeah, happening yeah. <laughs> is- Better way to put it. Right. It, what's happening is that the, the NRA and Fox News and the GOP- have become bad actors because they can't say what they actually want to say. What Wayne LaPierre wants to say is we are petrified of these black and brown people that are coming to, into these cities. We're petrified of not being centered in this culture. And we feel vulnerable because of that. And we want to have guns so that we feel like we still have complete and utter power, right? They can't say that out loud. So they have these disingenuous arguments. That's one of the things that's that's so difficult with all this. Like, I'm happy with no guns. I'm totally happy with no guns. I mean, you're going to have to hire people to take out the deer and things like that, or, you know, rabbits or things. I mean, it'll affect our ecosystem, believe it or not, in rural areas, because you do have people going out and, and hunting. But they're not having that debate. So it makes it almost impossible. Even with Fox News can't directly say what their actual agenda is, right? They can't say we promote continued xenophobia and, and a white supremacist state because it benefits us and it also benefits our corporate connections. And they can't say we don't want health care because we don't want to take money out of the pockets of, of the wealthy and the rich because that doesn't benefit our primary audience. So they are constantly coming up with these lies. What scares me on all this false, these kind of false narratives, not only can we not have debate, I feel like I'm starting to be old enough where I can see them getting worse. You even think about 10 years ago, we were talking about truthiness, right? There's no longer truthiness. Now there's a large segment of the population that believes in their hearts that um, not just truth, but actual facts are dependent on their own emotional needs. That's really scary. They know they're doing it, but they. But this is a philosophical point. It's it's a it's a level of sophistry. Like the debate, Trump holding a card of notes, telling him how to respond in the open town hall meeting, right? So there's video of him doing it, and it's been cleared by like AP and a bunch of other people. This picture, but. I saw people this morning saying, well, that's just not real. It's just not real. It's false. It's not real. Now, their their evidence for that is that it makes them feel bad, right? And so that's kind of really petrifying, seeing that kind of bad action, that false narrative happen to the degree that the people who are, who are pushing the false narrative are doing it from a logical position that's inherently false. That, you know, this idea that if it makes me feel bad, it's not real. Well, isn't, it, isn't that ultimately what was at the center of all of the discussion about Obama's birth certificate and birtherism, that you had this combination of you know, white supremacist perspective on having a black president, but then also this notion that he was, we feel that he's secretly a a Muslim or a socialist, wants to implement Sharia law, and therefore he can't have been, quote unquote, one of us that was born here. And and they, they stake out this position knowing who's going to be excited about it. But then it just becomes established fact. People start to say, well, I just feel that that, that Obama is a socialist or that black people shouldn't be telling me what to do. And, and then it, it doesn't even matter what's true, what's not. Did they actually produce a birth certificate? Was it real? It doesn't matter anymore because I just feel that right. Obama must be a Muslim and a socialist and not, and not a real American. Right. But I feel lately like I'm 
in some ways a relic on this from like 2003 in a sense that I still think so much of it comes back to Fox. Like so much. Oh, of I it. think you're hundred percent right in but that. Matt. Even, I, but yeah. remember, we used to talk no, about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like there was like all these, you know, those first documentaries about it. But now we just kind of, just it's just there. Like I mean, I don't think they would be enabled to do this. There's a lot of negatives of going back to a point where we had three three TV channels. But it was harder to create a mass false narrative. The anchor of Fox having this mass false narrative, which basically they have Shep Smith in the in the middle to to make him look good, right? But then, like you know, every night is your craziest fear is actually real, not really based on facts, but based on this other guy who also has this crazy irrational idea, you know. And that's scary. I mean, the bigger fundamental thing that just terrifies me is I worry that this is all original sin. That like, and I sound biblical when I say it, but like, the original sin we have here about our denial about the realities of slavery, our denial about the the realities of an attempted genocide of Native people, our denials about what happens in Cuba, what happens in Chile, what happens, in, basically how the CIA in our country has really been acting for 100 years, right? I mean, it gets organized in the last 50. So this, we have a pattern of a larger denial where we have, as a country, unlike a lot of other countries, everyone, every country has their lies, but in America, it's more extreme that we have created a pattern of belief that what we believe is more important than the actual facts in hand. And so it does feel like, not to quote the, the line of Malcolm X got in trouble for, but it does feel like a chicken's coming home to roost thing in this sense, that we used to do these denial actions about our, our activities in South America and Central America. Now we're doing them right here, right? And like you also see, like when I'm looking... The problem with getting old is is like I want to go to bed earlier. But the good thing is I've seen like so much I can add up things. If Katrina happened today, and we're talking 12 years later, Katrina happened today. At the time, there was no reaction to it. And it was actually this incredibly powerful moment, not just because of Katrina, but because we saw the way they were talking about Katrina. And you could see that they were talking about Iraq the exact same way, and Afghanistan the exact same way, right? So, like, that was the bigger thing there, not, not even the natural disaster, but the way that we got to see behind the curtain, right? If that happened to today, we would have tons of people online talking about how, you know, that Katrina was basically a hoax and it was just a one or two blocks that were flooded because, like, they've already learned how to respond to that. And I promise you, the next Unfortunately, and I say this as somebody with, I got a 16-year-old and twin 12-year-olds, the next major school shooting, they're going to have an immune response to powerful teenagers stepping forth, right? And I'm probably, I would, I would guess they are already grooming teenagers right now and will have other teenagers on there, you know, like defending another position. And we just get further and further down this line, but that the original sin that we're dealing with is the American ability to value its own like imagined, you know, self-image versus the self-image that actually, you know, is based on facts. In listening to you, Matt, it's um I, I started to think about 
you know, this debate I had between Glenn Greenwald and Jim Risen, and they were talking about the particulars of Russia. And a lot of people are concerned, and I think with good reason, if you have a, a big, powerful country intervening in the affairs of another country, something the United States would never do, yeah, we should investigate that. But in talking about Fox and sort of remi- stepping back and reminding us of Katrina and then looking at where we are now, we have domestic propaganda networks that have a much farther reach than any of those social media campaigns that the Russians supposedly paid for that are going to have very serious consequences for people in this country because of the idea that this is a hoax or spreading rumors about uh, you know the president not being a, a citizen and encouraging from the highest levels of power in this country a white supremacist ideology to come out and be fully out in the open with it. It's not right. that it's ever disappeared, but it's right. it, Trump has empowered those who felt like, who, whose idea that what's wrong with America is that we're no longer allowed to be that person in public. It's somehow become right. uncouth. And, and I find that infinitely more frightening than Facebook and Twitter ads that Russia may have purchased in the 2016 election. I mean, I'm I'm frightened what it means that we've had this Alex Jonesization of yeah. very big, powerful media entities, namely Fox News. I mean, yeah. it, it is, and you're right. You're totally right. Why do you think it is? Do you think it's because we know, we, like we know, Fox News is propaganda, and we've become so numb to it, or is it because we're overwhelmed with all the battles we're fighting? Like, why? Why don't we? Why don't we talk about it as the threat that it is? Well, I think part of it starts with the inability for the larger mainstream news media to repeatedly say. 60% of the population believes this, but 40% of the population who are Fox viewers believe that, right? You can't say that again and again because it sounds like you're going after Fox. It sounds rude. And as silly as that sounds, I hear constantly, Trump voters don't care about this. Trump voters don't care about that. He's got a set 40% of the vote. It goes down to 37. It goes up to 43. It's basically a 40% of the vote. Those viewers, my favorite thing is when bad things happen, I go to the Fox News front page. They're not hearing about any of this. You go there because you know you're not going to see any of it. <laughs> it's an ongoing joke. It is yeah. the fun. It's. It, I mean, if, if it wasn't destroying the country, it'd be it'd be even funnier. Right. But it is this ongoing joke that like major like the you know, thirteen indictments come down from Mueller for, um, to to the Russian troll farm. You know, you go to Fox's page and it's just not there. I no, mean, it's uranium one. It's all about Hillary Clinton, right? And, and they'll know. they'll do this thing where they'll put it like down in the corner, you know, there. But it's just not there. So, like the idea that that population, who many studies have shown, are only basically their their primary ecosystem comes uh, news ecosystem comes from Fox News, and then it goes secondarily on on talk radio, and then I think as the talk radio crowd starts aging out, I mean, it's amazing how like voiceless Rush Limbaugh has been in comparison to past, but that's partly because every you know his listeners are also dying of heart attacks, right? So then you get InfoWars kind of stepping in, a YouTube generation replacing the the talk media generation. But the, you know they're in this ecosystem and they're not seeing anything outside of it. And like looking at my own family, you know, who I love, I think most of them are, you know, they're going to work, they're coming home, they're watching the game. They're not trying to pay attention to the news and they don't realize it. But that reason they can do that is because they have the privilege of being the most protected cast in the country. If you're a white guy, um, you know, every all of us are vulnerable to things that happen in this country, but you're far less vulnerable than my family is. You know, like this election has resulted in in the last six months, both of my daughters have been called niggers at school. Right. Um, one by a kid wearing a Trump hat. So like my my life is directly affected by that. My wife, who 
was wearing um, a head wrap. She's African-American and like a lot of African-American women takes a lot of pride in her hair and, and, and getting the right products and everything else. And she wear, was wearing a head wrap to go buy some products and um, was followed out to her car and by somebody asking her about, you know, why are you wearing that? And other white people stood around and watched. Like nobody st stepped in or anything. Like my life has been affected by this. Like and a lot of people's lives have been aff affected by this. But my uncle's lives haven't. You know, they're just looking at the bottom line. They're not looking toward the future. They might see a dollar fifty tax cut and think like this is this this is great. You know, there's a larger ethno nationalism as aspect going there, but they don't even see their own race. Like in their minds, they are raceless. Other people have race. They're just normal people. So this whole idea of white nationalism, they don't think of it as white nationalism. They just think of it as being proud of America, hmm. you know, because they don't see race in, the, in that sense that they're blind to their own race. So, like, I think pointing this out and continually having to say one of the major news networks is, is not actually a news network. It is a, a terrarium of right-wing white supremacy. That's really what it is. I mean, I, I mean, I had this disagreement with Glenn Greenwald, and I continue to have it with him about uh, him going on Fox News. You know, he goes on Tucker Carlson's show. Right. He goes on Laura Ingram's show. I'm sure he would go on Hannity if he was invited. And I've been invited on both Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity's shows, and I haven't gone on those shows. If I was to go on, it would be because I wanted an opportunity to... Uh, denounce what they do on on air, right. but I, but I also you know part of me is just like I don't, I don't even want to do that as 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 political theater. But to me, it's not just well I stick to my principles and I say you know I'm I'm not going to talk to them differently than I would talk to anyone else. I'm going to say the same thing. But their reason for wanting me on, and I could tell from the emails that they sent me, is they want me to go on their show to attack the Democrats. They right. want me to go on their show to talk about the hypocrisy right. of liberals. So why are they doing that? Are they doing it because they, they like my work? No, they want to take somebody and use them to achieve a political purpose that is incredibly nefarious. Right. And so th that's what that's what it boils down to for me. It's yeah. is like I'm not going to participate in, in the – official network of the Ku Klux Klan's propaganda right. broadcast. And that's where, you know, I have a disagreement with Glenn on that. But I'm wondering, like, if you were invited to go on Sean Hannity's show, would you do it? No. No, I mean... I, Wait, like, really? You wouldn't? Oh, hell no. Are you saying... <laughs> well, l listen, I heard I heard him in the in the debate talking about that. And I don't know Greenwald, but I've, you know, read his work over the years. I do understand that he wants to hold a nonpartisan position as, as a newsman, right? And I do understand the idea of the impulse to try and reach people who you're not ordinarily reaching through a news network. But the, the unfortunate truth is Fox is not actually a news network. Fox is a bubble machine. Fox's motivation is not to inform people. It's to create a bubble where they can actually deny reality and, be, and hide from reality in some ways, right? So I know if I... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I get a call from one of these people, and I think I've gotten a call at some point, but if I get in a call from one of these people, there's two things that they would want me for. One is if I was going to bash a leftist politician or a leftist position. And, you know, when I've, I've had my critiques over the years, um, whatever, the other position would be to come on to be basically a, a wrestling uh, bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where they get to yell you down and, and talk about how you're crazy and deliberately kind of erase all nuance to try and destroy you. Now, that said, I would go on a, a podcast or a regular broadcast show with Sean Hannity. You know what I mean? Right, <laughs> like, right. If it's not him controlling yeah. the message. No, it's like yeah. X-Men. Like you don't yeah. go into somebody else's mind. You know, <laughs> like you got to meet on neutral territory. You bring up X-Men and I wanna uh, I wanted to ask you about Incognito and the and um particularly Incognito Renaissance. For people who are not familiar with your work, the main character, Zane Pinchbeck is a light-skinned black man who is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, who is posing as a white man to investigate the murder of a black man who is is visibly black. People right. will not mistake him for right. uh, anything uh, but what he is. So talk about the, the kind of origin of that and give people like a, a kind of sense of the tale that you sure. weave. I'm African-American, I'm mixed. I consider myself both, really. But I look very white to some people. I think, like in New York, I just look Puerto Rican. But like everywhere else, like and didn't, didn't you, you for for a while as a kid? Didn't you? Uh, didn't you sort yes. of say you were Puerto Rican? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's funny. Like my mom was like my my grandfather was a horrible person, and my mom decided for a bit that like her real father was Puerto Rican, and I just ran with it because there okay. were a lot of cute Puerto Rican girls <laughs> yeah. in school, and I thought like this is going to give me the in. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that's that's flexibility I don't have, there you, Matt. Oh, there no, you go. man, no. you, you used to meet some nice Czechoslovakian yeah. ladies. You can pretend. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but People yeah, do think I'm Russian. It's there weird. You go. Yeah. Right. So the, <laughs> but when I was a kid, my cousin and I used to play this game where basically we imagined my cousin was also mixed and and to many like white appearing, and we imagined that this thing that kind of made us feel kind of like freaks was actually like a superpower. And like, and at the time, I remember like imagining freeing slaves by pretending to be white and and infiltrating you know white supremacists wait this was as a kid you were you had yeah, even ideas? as a little kid yeah. like i was about 10 and i kind of forgot about it i was at a writers conference and sometimes uh, a writers retreat thing and sometimes at the writers retreat everybody comes up with nicknames and they come up with nicknames for somebody and then they'll use your nickname all week and it's kind of this like cute like fun thing to do to get away and uh natasha Tretheway, who's a, an amazing poet and was one of the poet laureates a couple of times who, who's also mixed decided mine was incognito because the way I looked. And then when she said it, it kind of brought all this thing back. And I thought, wow, that could either be the worst book I ever wrote or the best. And then I had like, and so I started thinking about that. And I came up with this character that was loosely based on a real, very loosely, I mean, just as inspiration, based on um, Walter White. It was a former head of the NAACP who was somebody who actually, you know, this is not Breaking Bad, Walter White. This is somebody who actually looked very Caucasian and at one time investigated lynchings in the South in the 1920s, pretending to be a white man, would come North and then publish the names of the people who were involved in it. They would go into the Negro press. It was a way to get some level of justice. Otherwise, there would have been no mention of what happened, really. So I used that as the basis on the first book. And 
it was really cool because like if I wrote that in a novel, that's kind of what you the type of topic you would expect from uh, African American literary fiction. But in comic books, it was totally new and different. And so like doing it in a comic one let me kind of just have this fun kind of noir action tale, which is not the kind of you know I write literary fiction, which is totally kind of different, and also had this uh, opportunity to reach audiences I'd never. Uh, actually reached before, or at least attempt to. Like, I didn't know the book was going to do well. I mean, I at the time... It was the first graphic novel that I read ever oh, wow. in my life. Oh, cool, It was man. the, it was the oh, first one awesome. that I ever read. Thanks. Yeah. I, I was really late to that. I didn't grow up reading comic books. Yeah. Um, so I was really late to it. And that was the first... It was the first one that I read. That's, and, that's yeah. extremely cool. Yeah. And it's funny, like, at the time I was a novelist with two two novels and nobody read. And like, you know, the first one, the first one didn't do great. The second one was like barely in stores. And so I thought my career was kind of over. So at the time, there wasn't as much kind of crossover between literary fiction and comic books. So it was kind of like I felt like I was like I'd gotten a Columbia MFA and all this. And I felt like I was like this Bolshoi trained ballet dancer who was like dancing at the airport on the weekends. You know what I mean? It was like it felt like it was, you know, I was kind of out of place. Uh, It's changed a lot since. Um, but that got the narrative off the ground, and the book uh, had a lot of response. It was my first New York Times review, it was things like that. And then we had this amazing opportunity to, to bring it back. I actually have the rights to it now, along with my um, artist, Warren Please. So we brought it back to redo it. We touched up the art to really enhance it. We had more of a budget this time. And then we also launched an entirely new series that in part is based on this incredible novel by Wallace Thurman. It was one of my favorite novels of the Harlem Renaissance. Wallace Thurman was a black writer of the Harlem Renaissance who died very, very young of, of TB. But he wrote this book where this this failed Harlem writer, and I guess I was a failed Harlem writer for a while, so I like really suck with it. And he's so mad at society for not buying his novel that he goes to a party and he kills himself at the party and he leaves his manuscript there so that he'll be the tragic artist and then they'll finally publish his book. But he kills himself in the bathtub and the water overruns and gets into the manuscript and ruins all the ink in the pages and then that's it. And it's, <laughs> like, and it's told as a joke, but I like wanted this guy to have more dignity than that. So almost 100 years later, I'm redoing it, but I'm doing it as a murder mystery. Hmm. Can you share with people as much of the plot as you feel comfortable without sure. giving it away. Yeah, and the first graphic novel that's out now, there is a reported African American who's being held in a jail and is about to be lynched. And uh, news comes to North that it looks like this guy's gonna be pulled out of the sheriff's office any second and get murdered. And it turns out that this guy has a brother who's working at basically the equivalent of the, uh, the Amsterdam News. And the brother looks, uh, unlike the one who in jail, who's brown skin, the brother looks uh, very white. He has pink skin, straight hair. He's African-American. So he goes to the South pretending to be somebody who's a national representative of the Ku Klux Klan to try and basically infiltrate and figure out what the actual mystery is, who this white woman was murdered, who the actual murderer is, and free his brother before he came out. One of the reasons I came up with that is I have twins that are 12 now, but at the time... Um, they were just born, and one of my twins has skin like mine, more European skin with straighter hair. His sister, my daughter, has brown skin and African tight hair, and I was really kind of struck with their lives are going to be different now, but they would have been way more dramatically different 100 years ago. The opportunities they would have had, the way the world would have encountered them. So, yeah, that was the basis for that one. And then the new one, there's a black man murdered, it seems, at a at a Harlem socialite party. 
and the the cops aren't really interested and immediately decide it's a suicide. So it's an origin story. It actually takes place before the first one. And we had this reporter actually having to basically pretend to be white to try and use that kind of white adjacent power to find out what really happened in this murder. Hmm. Yeah. You and I are almost the same age. Um, when you were growing up, did you you remember the Eddie Murphy era on Saturday oh, yeah, Night yeah, yeah. Live? Remember when he does Mr. White? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that one. Well, the funny thing is when he does Mr. White, he basically just looks like me. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like he has, I mean, it's it's interesting looking back because. It, no, but it's it, it's true. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. Well, outside of the, like he just looks like an old Dominican guy. When he does, like, outside, he still has his African features, right? Um, but he has the European skin. But I loved that skit when I was a kid. And like, and I guess I still like, there was a paranoia that maybe that, that was the reality. Like, you know, he's a black man. He pretends to be white. And all of a sudden he goes in the bank to get a loan. They're like, here, just take the money. You don't need credit. Just go. Life actually feels like that sometimes. Like. I thought of that when I went up for my first house loan. I went up for a Wells Fargo loan in a predominantly black neighborhood. And this was about two years before it turned out that Wells Fargo was had higher interest rates for African-Americans and or pe- people looking to buy in African-American neighborhoods. It did like tap into like something that's there. You remember when that came out, there was no discussion of white privilege yeah. Oh, yeah. in this country. The way it was obviously comic, but you look back and there's kind of a prescience to it too. He, he gets on a, a, on a city bus and as soon as the last black passenger gets off the bus, all of a sudden the seats are flipped upside down. They right. become cocktail tables. A waitress <laughs> comes out. Yeah. And- you know, he has like a, a, a strippers like dancing on his lap. Yeah. And- <laughs> well, that's first class on a plane. Right, <laughs> right, right. Like, exactly. You know, it says a lot of parable. Now, you, you grew up in Philadelphia. And so you were you were a kid in the 70s and 80s. You had the rise of the MOVE organization. You had the bombing of the MOVE organization. You had the arrest of Mumia Abu-Jamal. You had a racist white mayor for a good chunk of your childhood. Frank Rizzo. Frank Rizzo. What was that experience like for you growing up at that time in Philadelphia when you had the Frank Rizzo, you know, tenure, and then you also had militant black activists who were perceived as such a threat that the city of Philadelphia literally dropped a bomb on their house, killing women and children? Philly, much more than New York, has, and still has to some degree, but had a racial reality that was very black and white. Because New York had immigration, there's always going to be implied nuance. And you it can't simply be black and white because you have a black population that is an international population. You have a, you know, a massive brown population. You have a lot of different things that add cultural nuance. But in Philly, it was very easy to fall into that sort of simplistic idea of black and white because those were the majority populations. The Puerto Rican population there was relatively small. There was a Vietnamese population that was also relatively small, but mostly it was an African-American and European-American town. And it was always very stark. I mean, Frank Rizzo was, by today's definition, would be a Trump-esque candidate, but not, you know... Possibly senile and and nearly as corrupt. As he Trump. was like a mixture between Trump and Bull Connor or something. Yeah, so. right. More more the Bull Connor, but he was and he was also a showman in a in a way that kept him around. And he was one of those people that even as he had horrible press locally and nationally, he had a very hardcore group that thought Frank Rizzo represents you know uh, represents our Philly. I mean, I, I, you know, and I remember those images of him like lining up black men on the street, um, randomly pulling them together and frisking them, um, stripping them those days. 
So I think I did grow up with this kind of worldview that was impacted by by one side or the other. You were on team white or you were on team black. And it was very clear at high school who team whose team you were on, but there was not kind of any nuance. I remember getting on a bus with one of the people from Move. I don't remember who it was. I was only about 12. They were black radicals, but yeah, I think even more than that, they were eccentrics. It would be a better comparison in some ways to look at them like some sort of commune off in Arizona, where you had people who were not just rejecting um, issues along race, but were also rejecting a lot of issues, basically capitalist system. And and rejecting the idea that the nuclear family should be the center of our lives and that they were building community. They, They wanted to live completely outside of what uh, what the free market and the capitalist culture in this country dictates how, right. how you should be living. Yeah. Right. And in some ways, they would have fit better in California than they did fit <laughs> yeah. in Philadelphia, you know? And well, if they were white, there would never have been a bomb dropped on their house that way. I don't yeah. Think. But, you know, there is David Koresh. Like, there's like... Yeah, there, I'm not saying it doesn't yeah. happen to white people. I'm saying that that, that particular... Well, that was nuts. Yeah. I, I mean, I watched that live on TV. The bombing of the, the bombing. move uh, house. Yeah. And people, another thing people don't talk about now... Well, one, we had a black mayor. So I think some of us thought, well, maybe that will help. didn't help at all. But when they came out with a bomb, they announced on the news before they dropped the bomb that they were dropping a concussion bomb, a concussion bomb that wouldn't blow up the neighborhood. It would just have, you know, major vibrations that would knock everyone out. And then they dropped a bomb. Mm-hmm. And kids would come into school. This house was burned down or it was still burning when we went to school the next day. It was very clear and stark the power dynamic of race. It was always there. It was always very present. In some ways, like I had, I was did an event with Walter Mosley, the mystery writer, a couple of years ago. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And we, and he was like, I always like coming to Philly because it's like, it's always 1975 in Philly, <laughs> you know? And it is like, it's because yeah. of that kind of stark difference. But, but I got to say, I stayed at a hotel last night by Borough Hall in Brooklyn. It's so stark that on the Fulton Ave market side of, of there, it's almost entirely black and Latino, working class. You cross over to the other side to the townhouses in Brooklyn Heights, and it's almost entirely uh, wealthy uh, white families. And, and you know, it was the middle of the day, so you see the only black and Latino people, or most of the black and Latino people you see are people pushing prams with white children there. So, like, it's not like that disparity isn't uh, there in other ways. But in Philly, it always felt like that was the whole city. Hmm. When Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince started sort of coming on the scene, and then that then Will Smith got the show, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, did you like it? Did you watch it? What did you think of it? Well, I remember them throwing parties, like DJ parties, basically. Yeah. And and they were good. Yeah, I had a respect for that. I basically my favorite part of the Fresh Prince show was the opening. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, well, because he said, yeah, about right. talking about West Philadelphia. Philly, yeah. We're fine after that. Yeah. To me, the biggest closer to he, he's a little older than me, but but uh, but even a little older, like two years older, makes a big difference when you're in high school. The biggest impact to me was the Roots. I used to be a, like skate in Philly. It was part of like the you're, you're talking about the musical group, the Roots. The musical yeah. group, the Roots. There was a, a skate shop called Spike Skates on Fifth and South, and I used to go down pretty much every day after school, and then we'd skate around the city. And then I saw these guys. They were about a year younger than me, and they would set up on the corner, and they would set up a full drum set and a full upright bass, and they would come out and they would start rapping. And it wasn't just Black Thought. Then it was like you know, it was like twelve different guys would take turns, and they would rap for about two hours. And um, and busk and people would give them money and everything, and they started coming in like it, like it seemed like every Thursday and Friday they would be out there, and I remember thinking, 
these guys are so amazingly good. If they can't make it out of Philly, none of us can. Right. Like, and I assume they wouldn't make it out of Philly because it's like I couldn't imagine somebody from the, that area. First writing group I was ever in, Jill Scott was in that scene and, and like um, she was a, just a poet then. And so I saw like that whole from the ancillary position, but I saw that whole kind of generation come of age. And then and Will Smith kind of blew up so quick that he was like, it was like a one hit album and he was off to Hollywood, basically, understandably now, because you see all, you know, the incredible career he's had. He, I think, was the first wave of a bunch of people of my generation, which I guess is Generation X, came out of Philly that there was, uh, in some ways, like neo-soul, heavily jazz-influenced, and and kind of a post-black arts baby boomer generation. And, and that's kind of where my writing came out, too. You've written several now graphic novels, and you are interested in in writing for TV. What what ideas do you have kicking around right now? Well, let me. All right, I'm pitching in the room. No, you know it's weird. No, I don't need to be pitched. No, no, I'm, I'm I'm, I just. I mean, I I think what you're doing is so unusual and incredibly important, and it's the goal. It's a golden era of TV right now. So yeah, I think. I mean, that's it. It seems to me like a logical thing for you to do. That's so I'm it. just curious what your ideas are. Yeah. Well, I, I have this really weird career because I have a novelist career, and the novelist career you know, is what it is. And most of the people who read novels, that's the career they know. They don't read comic books. And when I write the comic books, most of the people who read my comic books will never read my novels. So it's like they're parallel. You know, when kids parallel play, like that's how my career is. So in some ways that's kind of good because I don't have a brand. <laughs> so it allows me to kind of write anything like Dennis Leary had this joke about his father would smoke, but he'd smoke anything, any brand, and he'd just pull a twig off the tree and smoke it. And that's how my writing career has been. So, yeah, I mean, it's a golden age of television. And I had my book, Loving Day, was optioned a couple of years ago, and I worked with another writer, uh, Sam Bain, who was one of the, the head writers or, or creators of the show Peep Show it was in Britain, a really hilarious show. So I worked with him for about a year and a half, and it was like going to grad school again, you know, in the sense that I learned so much about the different – you know, this different genre of writing. So now, yeah, I'm starting to write uh, more kind of direct TV stuff. And it's, I think my career actually in function has been, I work on a novel for three years and then I hand in the novel. And while I'm waiting for the novel to get edited and everything else, you know, my agent looks at it. My editor is Chris Jackson, who's the head of One World, will, will look at it. When they're working, I'll go write a script. So for years, I've been writing comic book scripts that way. The big change now is, I'm not just writing comic book scripts on that break. I'm writing movie scripts too. So I have another novel that's about to finish. I'm working on a memoir. Um, but once I hand those over, it's really nice to be able to spend three weeks on a totally different project. Um, and I guess people have always done this, but uh, like writers tend to do short stories. I don't write short stories. So that's really kind of opened me up to do these other things. But look, I'm 47. It's so cool to do something new, hmm. you know? And And I think that's what, that offers. It's a very unforgiving medium, though the, the writing script writing. You know, because it's uh, we we can't just pick up a script and read it. If you don't know how to read a script, it's a it's actually quite yeah. difficult to follow because it's uh, uh, you're you're not you're not writing it for consumption of readers. You're writing it to to so that people can build what's in your imagination. Right. And what comic books are very similar. The difference between a comic book script and a TV or film script is in a comic book script. I have to describe every action in a frozen picture. And it's usually four to six panels per page. And instead of saying, a guy walks in the room, closes the door and sit down, it's panel one, a guy opens the door. Panel two, a guy's walking in the room. Panel three, a guy sits down. So in that way, 
yeah, the detraction from with that and writing prose is when I write prose, I'm bringing it to life completely. It begins and ends with me. The attraction with writing a script, whether it's for a comic book or for or for film or TV, is collaboration. As I, as I said, like I'm not the most social person, but I love talking to people I actually love talking to. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's the difference. And so like getting to collaborate, I think especially after 20 years of being in a in a closet alone, basically, is like so rewarding. And I think like now too, like in my mind, I've written a good novel. I don't know which one that is, but one of them has got to be good. And, you know, I've had a career and it hasn't been like an explosive career, but it was a, a nicely building career. And so I'm starting to think more and more about what types of artistic expression are more fulfilling. And I got to say, like when I write a comic book, for instance, like most of my artists have been in England. So I'll write a script. It gets sent to England. My British artists will send stuff to me. Because of the time difference, I wake up and it's Christmas. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like I go in my inbox and there's these beautiful illustrations of what I talked about. And then we talk about those illustrations or not, depending how it's going. And then I get to see the pencil version and the ink version and then sometimes the color version. It's the collaborative work itself that separates it from the novel. And the same thing with writing scripts. I mean, I was surprised. I've heard the horror of getting notes. You know, you get notes from somebody. I was surprised to see that. Like a lot of the notes were really helpful. And all of a sudden it was like I was my work was becoming better, not just because of my doggedness, but because other people were getting insights into it that helped the project. Hmm. I wonder if that's also a um, part of just kind of growing up and becoming wiser as you go along, you know, that I remember when I first got into journalism, I was very defensive when editors would cut things, et cetera. And, and I mean, I wrote two 700-page books, and, and I, I, they probably should have been shorter than they were. And I think if I wrote them today, I would have, uh, I think I would have listened more to the people that were offering yeah. me constructive feedback. But I, I just, I, it, you just brought up something that I wonder about often. Like, I feel like as I've gotten older, I am much more, I, I view it as a, um, as a plus to have people giving you thoughtful right. notes on what you're working on. Yeah. But one of the things to keep in mind is that when you deal with younger people, is like, you're Jeremy Scale now. Like, you know, like, no, but seriously. It's when you're younger, you're trying to yeah, that's a good make point. your name. Now you have your name. And so it's a little more relaxing position to somebody come in and say, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? And like, I think that's one of the benefits from age is I've got my cookie. You know, like yeah. I always wanted a cookie. I, once you get your cookie, it's easier. I mean, again, like to throw back to the Eagles, I can give up football because yeah. the Eagles won. Right. So I think when I was younger, I wanted to have my name out there and I wanted to you know, make my name. And now I see the limitations of that. And I just want to have a better process and, and grow, which sounds so cheesy, but that's really it. I want to read you one of your one of your tweets. And it's I've never left a movie and felt like I'd witnessed a societal game changer before. You don't say which movie, but I assume you were talking about Black Panther. Yeah, that was my earnest tweet of the of the week. Yeah, I was. uh I was really like surprised. I'm I'm the type of person, and I'm not proud of this, but when everybody loves something, I immediately go, I go I'm probably going to hate it. Hmm. I've still never seen Hamilton. <laughs> so I assume going into this, it was going to be one of those things where everybody's talking about how great it is, and I'm going to go, I'm like, eh. And I'm also, like, I started by reading comic books. Like, I, the first thing I ever read was Hulk, uh, reprint of Hulk, number one. So it wasn't overhyped. And that's all I have to say because it's, it was heavily, 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 heavily hyped. I think what changed for me watching, I'm trying to write about it now, but hmm. when I was a kid, Black Beauty 
was not considered a given. And African beauty was not considered a given. And Lupita is one of the most beautiful women on the face of the planet. Chadwick Boseman, all those guys. I mean, it was like the like the most insanely beautiful human beings out there. And Ryan but, Coogler is an amazing director. Yeah, yeah he's also yeah. pretty too. He is pretty, <laughs> but, yeah, that's but true. But then like in addition to that though, I mean, it wasn't obviously just the, the people. It was the art direction of the the outfits. All of them, you know, they were sometimes futurized versions of them or modernized versions, of them, but all of them had very specific roots in existing African attire and existing African art and showed the beauty of that. And together, it was so stunning. The narrative itself, it was a Marvel movie. And, you know, they're not always great. I see all of them. I love them even when they're, they're not that great. It's still fun for me to see the world I imagined when I was 10 become life, right? But the narrative itself was both a Marvel movie and it was a discussion of American imperialism, you know, and a continued discussion of, you know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And, you know, the one of the central issues with the fantasy of Wakanda, Wakanda is basically, in my mind, is a created African-American homeland, right? There is no real Wakanda, Matt. Well, um, listen, you know. how about that? The primary <laughs> response from the Pepe's, from the right-wing trolls, was not that this is a bad movie, was not that these are ugly people. It was this This place isn't real, which is like, I, I've noticed again and again, like, as I get older, like, you can tell the quality of someone's counter-argument by what they open with. Yeah. And like, you're going to open with this place isn't real. Like, neither is Asgard. What's your point? Well, I mean, what was so funny is that that, that dipshit uh, Ben Shapiro, I, I, I watched some clip of him where he's going on and on about how there's the Wakanda's not real. Yeah. Meanwhile, he was constantly tweeting about shit happening in Westeros. Right. You know, right. Game of Thrones. <laughs> One of the things that's fascinating, I saw another tweet where somebody is saying, well, can you imagine if, you know, there was a movie set in like, in imagine like Scandinavian country, <laughs> like Thor, like what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but like what's fascinating about that too is that one of the strategies of whiteness and also probably a detraction of white, of the strategy of whiteness is that Boy, most films and TV shows are set in fictional white right. places anyway. But they can't see race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, right? They can only see race when it's not them. So in their mind, that's never happened in existence. So it's that's what's really stunning about it is they can't see it, which it, when you think about it strategically is a blind spot. And that's part of what the comic book Incognito is about, is that if you actually can't see race other than looking at black and white and you're missing nuance, then you can be infiltrated. You know, that that's actually a weakness. What the left has going for it, at least in the in the white American left, has going for it is that they're beginning to acknowledge basically their own ethnicity and their own issue in their own race. And once you acknowledge your own race, then all of a sudden, you know, when you look at a picture of 1947 Avengers, you see, oh, it's all these white people in costumes, right? Like you start to see race in a way that makes you more conscious about diversity and all these and all these other things. On the right end side of it, they can't really see who they are. They just see themselves as normal, hmm. which blinds them to so much of what they're doing. And I'll, I'll say it's like, I live in, in Texas. I'm from the East Coast. When I grew up on the East Coast, I heard a lot of criticism from both white and black people and other people about white liberalism and, and the, the limitations of white liberalism and largely the hypocrisies of white liberalism. But after living in Texas... I will tell you, at least as far as me and my family is concerned, I appreciate someone who's trying to do something, someone who may, might even be hypocrit uh, hypocritic if they're trying to do something, versus open hostility. Like, I get open hostility sometimes in Texas and other places in the South. 
I go places with my family and my wife was visu- visibly black. My children, you know, my daughters are as well. I get open hostility there. They look at us as somebody sometimes, not everywhere, but it's it, even if it only happens 10% of the time, that happens a lot, right? I get this feeling of kind of, why are you here in our space? And I see that in real life. And then I see that in the same thing with like Wakanda on film. Our space is as the Marvel Universe and big blockbuster movie theaters. And Wakanda is in that space now. Why are you in our space? Hmm. Well, uh, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Matt Johnson. And I also want to encourage people to read your work. Um, Your work covers so much more than just the politics of race or the heritage of your own family or your own personal story. I mean, you're a fucking great writer. Dude, and, I, um, I'm, I'm so honored coming from you. I, and, uh, really I mean, I put, I put you in, I put you in, the, you mentioned Walter Mosley. I put you in the same category of, as Walter Mosley. I think, I think bo- both of you are tremendous, tremendous writers that deserve a very wide audience. Uh, I, I, I'm utterly flattered and don't know how to handle it. So thank no. you. <laughs> All right, Matt Johnson. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Matt Johnson has written numerous books, including Loving Day and the graphic novels Incognito and Incognito Renaissance. Matt's also a professor at the University of Houston Creative Writing Program. Matt's own story is featured in the new Topic docuseries, The Loving Generation. You can watch all four episodes online at topic.com. And you can follow Matt Johnson on Twitter. He's Matt with one T underscore Johnson. And that does it for this special bonus episode. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, log on to theintercept.com slash join. Sam Samzazar is our honorary producer this season. We thank him for his generous support. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack DeZadoro, and our executive producer is Letal Malad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. Emily Kennedy does our transcripts. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.